I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Adam Kay on his former life as a junior doctor in his book, This Is Going To Hurt. Adam Kay is an award-winning comedian and writer for TV and film. He previously worked as a junior doctor, and that has led to this book that we're going to be talking about today, This Is Going To Hurt, Secret Diaries of a Junior Doctor. Adam, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. So I want to talk first of all about how you chose to be a doctor. And I say chose deliberately because it wasn't really a choice. It wasn't really a choice in as much as when you make a decision age 16, it's never going to be a totally informed choice. And it is 16 because medical schools obviously have certain ideas of A-levels they want you to have if you want to be a doctor. And then that's the age when you decide what A-levels you're going to do. America has got medicine, to my mind, almost completely wrong. Except for this, you do medicine as a postgraduate degree. Almost everyone does it in this country. That's, that's relatively rare, but it's an informed decision. You've done a degree, you've worked out if you can deal with the, the stress of it, the, the reality of it, and you make an informed decision. When you're 16, you know, it boils down to, like, it's either, you know... One or two of your parents are doctors. There's often a positive family history, as they say. Or, you know, you quite like Holby City or something like that. It's a, it's a rubbish decision. And when you make the decision you want to do medicine, and also if and when you get into medical school, everyone says, oh, amazing, brilliant, congratulations. No one ever says, oh, are you, are you sure? You know, there's, it can be a difficult job. And there's nothing about the selection process either that allows for that. I mean, if you want to be a train driver, they'll give you psychometric testing, make sure you're the right sort of person. If you want to be an astronaut, same thing. If you want to go on Big Brother, same thing. If you want to be a doctor, they don't check anything. They want you to have some good A-level results, which actually isn't what necessarily makes a good doctor. And weirdly, they always make sure that you're good at some extracurricular activities. And so I was, um, I was good at the piano, I played the saxophone, I did the school magazine. Apparently that was enough to be a doctor. And if you look at the Wikipedia entry of any famous doctor, it's been the same throughout history. So here's one. He proved himself an accomplished rugby player in youth leagues. He excelled as a distance runner and in his final year at school was vice-captain of the athletics team. 
and that's Harold Shipman, so it's potentially not a completely rock-solid system. So the diary itself, the diary was written as you went along, training to be a doctor, and then starting as a trainee doctor in a hospital. Yeah. So tell me how that came about. Why did you write it? Looking back at it, even though this isn't how it felt at the time, looking back at it, I guess it was my therapy. So because no one talks about the bad stuff and the sad stuff, you have to find a way of dealing with it because the very nature of medicine is more bad things happen than good, which is probably why there's this you know, long history of you know, like smutty Christmas reviews and things that medical students do and why so many uh, medics in the past have, have become comedians. It's because you do look for the funny stuff. So I was going up to my hospital on call room and jotting down on anything weird or repulsive that happened to me that day. And the longer I went on, the more... I was writing so it went from just the revolting stuff to also the sad stuff and the difficult stuff and um, eventually looking back at my diaries they're I think hopefully a fair reflection of what it means to be a junior doctor there is the funny stuff but there isn't the sad stuff there's the high octane stuff and there's the mundane stuff and all of that and indeed when you read a lot of medical memoirs there will be this bit about the training you know and it's all like drinking and rugby and hijinks with body parts and stuff and memorising lots of body parts. And you pretty much skip most of that because what happens in reality is you do that medical training for years and it's hard, but then you're just thrown straight into a hospital and it's almost like the two things are, like, unconnected. They are unconnected. There's no alternative for managing a heart attack than managing a heart attack. So you can know the ins and outs of the coronary vasculature you can know all the signs and symptoms you can know the exact pharmacology of the drugs you're giving but nothing is the same as being there and doing it I think things are a little better now when I trained which was a few years ago it was very much see one do one teach one and that was the way you you learn there's some stuff you can't learn from textbooks and I suspect medical school doesn't need to be five or six years long there's a very large amount of time memorising things like Krebs cycle and stuff like that that no doctor in a million years will ever need. But because we do it as an undergraduate degree here, you can't get through it in two or three years and have 20-year-old doctors wandering around the world. So it's a bit of a holding pen, I guess. Uh, I didn't really start writing my diaries properly until I was on the the wards, and I also felt that it was quite a well-explored area, the sort of debauchery of medical school. And in a way, I wrote the book, or assembled the book, rather, in response to the junior doctor crisis of a couple of years ago, and I didn't think it was particularly pertinent you know, talking about, you know, debauched medical school training, um, more about what it actually means to be on the front line. So talk us through those first few weeks when you've just basically got your first hospital assignment. The other thing that I was surprised by, something I learned, which I'm hoping most other people would also believe, is that I thought a junior doctor was basically your very first role in a hospital. And you do that for a bit. And then you get promoted to being a, a you know, some sort of better doctor. Um, And, you know, whenever we talk about the long hours, everybody knows this idea of junior doctors work ridiculously long hours and and have an inordinate amount of pressure. But basically, a junior doctor is every role that you do. It's pretty much every doctor in a hospital, apart from the consultant, Mm -hmm. is known through some very bad terminology as a junior doctor. And that's why when the junior doctors, in inverted commas, were coming under fire, they got a bit of limited sympathy. People didn't realise that some of these junior doctors were a week away from being a consultant and they were in their 
late 30s, early 40s. They had multiple postgraduate degrees. They were the specialists, the super sub-specialists that patients were seeing, but they just lumped in together as junior doctors. I would say it's a bit like if everyone in um, Parliament, other than the Prime Minister, was known as a junior politician. It's just some bad terminology. And I think in people's minds, some people thought it's medical students. And as you thought, it was just the people in their first year or so. But it isn't that and wasn't that. But the first couple of years, so they're known as the foundation years. When I was there, it was known as being a house officer. And it was very much the deep end. You don't specialise yet. You're either working in general medicine or general surgery. So you're up on the wards and working as part of a team. And during the day, it's fine. The hours are bad, but it's fine. You're the most junior sort of duckling tagging along on the ward rounds. You're doing sort of mundane administrative work and you spend a lot of the day thinking, I don't know why I had to train for six years for this. And then at night, it becomes this sort of unremitting nightmare where you're suddenly in charge of the hospital. So there are other doctors around. So there's the senior house officer and the registrar, but they'll be down in A&E reviewing someone with an emergency who needs to be admitted to the ward. So they might have like pneumonia, or a broken leg. You're seeing patients having emergencies on the wards, but by definition, they're on the wards. So they already had something wrong with them in the first place. So you're seeing someone who got a broken leg because they fell out of bed because of their epilepsy, or they've got pneumonia following the stroke that they came with three weeks earlier. So you've got this weird build your own burger of symptoms led on conditions led on diseases, and you're, and you're the most junior person. And you're conducting this sort of constant, like, medical decathlon running from one emergency to another, to another, to another, none of which you've been sort of particularly briefed in how to manage. But you have to manage them because if you don't, then there's no alternative. So you get good quick. So as we go along, I'm going to get you to read some of the diary entries from the book. And so let's let's do some from those early house officer years. So given my eventual speciality was obstetrics and gynaecology, only seeing female patients really, I'd like to read you a job from my first year as a doctor when I worked in urology, so um, male problems. This is from the 7th of February 2005. My move to surgery has rewarded me with my very first degloving injury. Okay, so um, there's lots of footnotes in this in this book. Um, unlike being a junior doctor, I just don't just throw you in the deep end. It's a bit you know what you're doing. So, uh, so I'll do a manual footnote for you. So, a degloving injury is basically when skin and blood vessels are torn traumatically from the underlying tissues, like like if a wedding ring gets ripped off a finger and it takes the skin with it, or a motorcyclist flies off their bike on their hands, dragging on the ground. Horrible term, degloving injury. Patient WM is 18 and was out celebrating with friends after receiving his A-level results, three Cs. After tucking out time, he found himself dancing on the roof of a bus shelter, then decided to get back to ground level using a neighbouring lamppost as a fireman's pole. He jumped onto the lamppost and slid down koala bear style. He had misjudged the texture of the lamppost, which provided more friction than he had allowed for. He therefore presented to A&E with severe grazing to both hands and a complete degloving of his penis. This was far and away the worst penis I have ever seen. And I have seen a lot of penises. Worthy of a rosette, if only there was a place to pin it. A couple of inches of urethra coated with a thin layer of bloody pulp, maybe two millimetres diameter in total. It brought to mind a remnant of spaghetti stuck to the bottom of the bowl by some tomato sauce. The patient was upset. 
This was made worse when he asked if the penis could be re-gloved. The consultant explained that the glove was spread evenly up eight foot of lamppost in Fulham. You mentioned there that you you end up specialising in um, obstetrics and gynaecology. That's right. And I wanted to talk about that point. Rats and twats, as it was known. (laughs) That point. Parts and labour. That point where you start to have to make a decision of where that's going to be. How does that happen and why did you choose that? Again, it was another decision that I made a bit too quickly with not enough of the, the sort of thinking bit. So when you're a medical student, you rotate through all of the specialties, which you know makes sense, so you, so you can so good at a bit of everything by the time you qualify. I really enjoyed obs and gynae. You end up with twice the number of patients you start with, which is a pretty good batting average for a branch of medicine. And um, the registrar, the sort of middle grade doctor who I was with as a student, told me that it was actually quite an easy specialty, which is true. Um, you only have to learn to do like a few different procedures. There's the caesarean section, we know that one, forceps, so to, like salad tongs to pull the baby out, ventouse extraction, which is the you know vacuum cup on the top of the baby's head and pull it out. And that's literally a vacuum. It's just literally, I mean, there's, it's, it's no more fancy than that. Um, and then the only other thing you have to learn to do on labour ward is sewing it all back afterwards. There's slightly more to the job to that in that what the job really involves is deciding when to do each of those tricks. So, you know, look at the baby's heart tracing or the progress of the labour and saying, oh, let's leave it 15 minutes, half an hour, review in an hour, whatever. But basically, it's not a difficult job. It is actually a difficult job because it's emotionally very difficult. And whilst it's the most rewarding part of medicine, whilst the highs are very high... The lows, when they happen, are very low. And learning to build up this emotional force field is actually very difficult and isn't for everyone. And as it turns out, that side of it wasn't wasn't really for me. But I guess that's how I made my, my decision. I felt like I could do it. And then I started doing it. And again, steep learning curve. But I got good at it. And then the better you are at something, the more you enjoy it, and it's a sort of virtuous cycle like that, isn't it? There's a surprising amount of entries, of diary entries in the book, that suggest that a lot of your patients, or should I say clients at this point, aren't that familiar with their own reproductive systems or how they actually ended up there. No. I think that education, medical education, is, is very poor in schools, which we see in all sorts of ways. You know, there have been big advertising campaigns saying this is what it's like to have a heart attack. This is what it's like to have a stroke. And a lot of people, you know, don't know how to get pregnant. A huge number of people. A lot of people don't know what pregnancy involves. A lot of people, you know, don't know how to take their pills. A lot of people don't know how to use condoms, all sorts of things. And it's it's an education thing. And um, I was surprised. But then again, you, know, you and I had an education that, that most of the country didn't. And it's, it's, it's very easy to forget that. But um, hopefully I don't make fun of my patients too much. Or maybe I do in the book. But um, yeah, it was, yeah. That, that certainly surprised me working as a doctor. I was thinking particularly of the guy that um, thought the condoms were too big for him because he was trying to put them over his balls. Oh, he thought they were too small. He said, too yeah, small, yeah. yes, my condoms are always tight. And we explored that and they were going right down over his balls. Um, lots of things with condoms. I, you know, topically for the moment, I, uh, I performed a very large number of terminations of pregnancy. And it's no one's ideal way to spend a morning, but it's 
it's necessary. It's we're a civilized society, as Ireland now realise, as Northern Ireland still don't realise, but hopefully will soon. And so it's you know it's a choice, and I'm the person for a lot of women who is able to help them exercise that choice. But you always there's often a, an issue with education or not knowing uh, how contraception works or how to stop it happening next time. And so you always have the conversations, and and a lot of the time it was people not understanding how the contraception worked. And there's I'm not sure if this made it into the book or not, but there was a a girl I spoke to who was reusing condoms by turning them inside out after the first use, and uh, and that will contribute to pregnancy. Before you read another one, you've just been a house officer, and yeah. I want you to read a selection from your time as a senior house officer. Yeah. Um, before we do that, the other part of this, you know, moving through the grades in the hospital, is that you're you're basically automatically moved to a new hospital from the one that you've been in for the last six months or a year. How does that work? So, yeah, that's, that's absolutely it. So we all realise, as, you know, members of the public, whatever the term for non-doctors is, patients, we all realise as patients that the hours are difficult as a junior doctor. There's a lot of other things we don't quite realise that are more than the hours on your rotor. So my worst week on the rotor was 97 hours, which is a lot. But there's something worse than that. So it's the fact that if it's five o'clock when you're meant to go home and someone starts bleeding out... You don't have a choice. You stay for an extra two or three hours and you sort them out and then you go home. You technically have a choice, but if that's a choice to you, you'd have never applied to be a doctor in the first place. You stay and you sort it out. And it's not that that happens once a month or even once a week. This happens routinely. There's an emergency. It's it's a system with no slack in it. So you're always staying back and helping out. And so you're always then texting someone saying, oh, I'm really sorry, work, I'm going to have to cancel on drinks or dinner or whatever it is. And then by the second or third time you've texted the same mate, so I can't make it, these people stop inviting you out. So your social circle contracts. And, you know, if you're working on labour ward, babies are delivered on Christmas Day, like Jesus, for instance. You know, they're sort of, babies don't care what day of the year it is. So looking back through the six or seven Christmases I worked as a doctor, I only spent one of them with my family. So it wasn't all bad. And another thing is, as you say, you're frequently moving hospital. And this makes sense. The theory is great. So they want you to work in big hospitals, in small hospitals, some are experts in this, some experts in that. So by the time you finish and become a consultant, you're well-rounded, you can become your own doctor, you, you know, you've worked with lots of other people. This fails slightly in practice because you're moved around quite a large area. So the country is divided into what's known as deaneries, and you can be randomly allocated to any hospital in this so-called deanery. But deaneries are quite big. So, for example, one of the deaneries is called Scotland, and it's very difficult to find a flat that's handy for all of Scotland. And so unless you exist in a vacuum, you have to have a conversation once a year with your other half saying, do you mind if we move 150 miles away again? And quite often the answer is yes I do mind that's mad I'm not giving up my job so that's difficult and it's something a lot of people don't realize about uh, being a doctor and doctors move uh, generally on the on the same day of the year which is known as Black Wednesday 2nd of August 2006 it's Black Wednesday and I have started at St Agatha's it's an established fact that death rates go up on Black Wednesday knowing this really takes the pressure off so I'm not trying very hard this is a diary entry from the first time I did a Von Tuss delivery on Labour Ward. 19th of September, 2005. 
first von two's delivery i suddenly feel like an obstetrician it's a pretty notional job title until you can you know actually extract a baby my registrar lily talks me through it gently but i do it all myself and it feels absolutely great congratulations you did amazingly well there says lily thank you i reply then realize she's actually talking to the mother One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Adam Kay. We're talking about his book, This Is Going To Hurt, Secret Diaries of a Junior Doctor. Adam, you just mentioned a not atypical shift of doing about 90 plus hours a week and obviously you know that's a long time and you're gonna not get much sleep and be tired and so sleep deprivation for a junior doctor is actually it's quite a big deal isn't it it is i'm certain that i was unsafe at times working as a doctor because i was sleep deprived Happily now, the hours are a bit lighter, but they're still not easy by any stretch of the imagination. If you're working for 14 hours, how can you expect anyone in any job to be as good at hour 14 as they were at hour one? And when I was doing a... I was relatively senior at this point. I was doing a a caesarean section and I, I cut a baby's face as I was cutting through the uterus to get the baby out. And it's a known complication and no harm came to this poor baby that healed well but I know that I wouldn't have done that at the start of my shift 
And there were times where I there was once when I fell asleep at traffic lights driving home. I mean, I'm glad that what's happened is I fell asleep in traffic lights, not I fell asleep while I was driving and sort of mowed down a pedestrian. You know, that, that could have happened just as easily. And um, you try and get some sleep if and when you can, if it gets quiet. But the problem is it's a, it's a stretch system. It doesn't get that quiet, particularly on... Um, on labour wards. And I worked in one hospital where they decided they were taking away all of the on-call rooms. A manager had decided, if you're paid to work here, then you're paid to be awake, which is fair enough. But, you know, if you're working at night, then it's not quite as easy to sleep during the day because, you know, the postman knocks on the door, there's a big sun glowing through the window. And so sometimes it is good to get 20 minutes sleep, but they took away the the beds and everyone had to sort of make do trying to get 10 minutes sleep in a like in, a, in an armchair or something, just off the labour ward. And I felt like if I ever saw a manager saying, if it was your wife or your sister or your daughter having a baby, would you rather that the doctor on the shift had been forced to stay awake or they'd been allowed to get half an hour's sleep when it got quiet? It, that really did baffle me but um doctors aren't always treated particularly well by the powers that be no and i mean as you mentioned in the book you know if you'd have gone out not that there would have been a lunch but you know if you'd have gone out for lunch and had a couple of pints and come back and operated someone you'd have you know you'd have more more than likely been struck off but you know realistically you'd have been as fit to do that as you would have done if you hadn't slept for 24 hours yeah people have done studies comparing reaction times and sort of uh you know fine hand movement clinical skills yeah and when you're very tired, you might as well be a couple of pints deep. Can I get you to read another selection? So this is an extract from when I worked as a registrar, which is sort of halfway to becoming a, a consultant. It means you get a small pay rise. It means you get a lot more responsibility. You're sort of in charge of uh, the labour wards day to day. And it means you get to be called Mr K rather than Dr K, which makes the previous decade of studying feel like a fucking waste of time. And this story represents the thumping baseline of the job of being a doctor, which is people inserting objects into orifices. Friday the 29th of February 2008. Special occasions call for patients to insert special types of objects into their vaginas and recta. Christmas in particular has rewarded me well with a stuck fairy, a swollen vulva from a mistletoe contact allergy and vaginal burns from a patient stuffing a string of lights inside and turning them on, bringing new meaning to the phrase, I put the Christmas lights up myself. This is my first leap year working as a doctor and the great British public have really pulled it out of the bag for me with a very, very specific injury. Patient JB decided to take advantage of tradition and proposed to her boyfriend, going to the expense of buying an engagement ring, the trouble of putting it inside a kinder surprise egg and the imagination of inserting it vaginally. Her partner would discover it, retrieve it, and then she would go down on one knee, equal parts unexpected, disgusting and, I suppose, romantic. Unfortunately, he was unable to retrieve it as planned. It had rotated itself lengthwise, and no amount of sugarling from either of them would get this particular goose to lay its golden egg. Remarkably, she was so keen to maintain the surprise, she wouldn't tell him what she'd done or why, but eventually decided it was a hospital matter, so we met in cubicle three. It was a very easy delivery with a pair of forceps. She hadn't told me about the contents of the egg either at this point, so there was a moment of confusion for both me and the boyfriend when she asked him to open it. 
I passed him a pair of latex gloves, sandblasting the last trace of romance from the scenario. She popped the question, and he said yes, presumably out of fear as to what a woman who does that with the kind of surprise would do to him if spurned. Right, now after after that entry, we're going to take a, a, a 90 degree turn, because I want to talk about what it was. You sort of hinted at it earlier on, but what happened to make you the catalyst to you not being a doctor any longer, basically. Sure. So I've, I've mostly been talking about the frivolous things that um, that happened to me when I was a doctor. And, you know, the book is mostly a funny book, but it's also what it does mean to be a doctor day to day, which means that there is some sad stuff. There's a lot of breaking bad news. And, you know, obviously I saw my fair share of sad things during the seven years working in a hospital leading up to this. But I was a senior registrar, which meant I was the most senior person on the ground at the weekend, one one click below being a consultant. And I guess all you ever want from every patient on Labour Ward is a healthy mum and a healthy baby. And basically, no one's fault. Just, you know, bad stuff does happen through bad luck sometimes. It was a day where we ended up with, with neither. And... I just failed to deal with it. And, you know, everyone at the hospital was very good to me, very nice to me, explained that I couldn't have done anything differently. It wasn't my fault. Anyone at any grade with any amount of experience would have done the same things and ultimately had the same outcome. But, I mean, it was as if I told them I'd sprained my ankle. It was like, oh, no, that's terrible. But can you still, you know, still come in? to clinic tomorrow and do clinic because like there's no there's no slack so you can go home on time there's definitely no slack to say maybe you need a couple of weeks off maybe we should pay for you to talk to someone so I did go back and I was I was a different doctor I was in the same skin but I was a totally different doctor I was very cautious like when I said before the job involves you know when do you deliver the baby do you wait 15 minutes 30 minutes 60 minutes every baby got delivered as soon as a baby's heart rate dropped the tiniest bit and it wouldn't be any of my juniors doing it training up I would do it and that didn't make me a better doctor and I wouldn't have been able to have stopped my bad day at work from happening by being more cautious it would still have happened I was just trying to make myself feel better and then someone explained to me and they were trying to make me feel better and explained to me that all obstetricians if you're the most senior person you have some kind of major catastrophe every five or six years And I just suddenly had an epiphany that I couldn't deal with that happening to me ever again. I didn't have the exoskeleton to bounce it off. Just writing down funny things in a diary wasn't wasn't enough of a a release valve. And in medicine, you don't talk about the bad stuff. It's all, you know, we're bloody doctors and we'll bloody get on with it. And it's about, you know, stiff upper lip and stiff drink and, and carry on. Um... And it shouldn't be like that. Medics should be more honest from the day you apply to medical school all the way through your training to when you choose your specialty all the way through when bad stuff happens. You know, the NHS might have kept me if there there was a slightly different approach in the system to the sad stuff. There's one consultant who works in London who says to all her junior trainees on the first day of working in obstetrics, by the day you retire there's going to be a coachload of dead babies and kids with cerebral palsy. And that coach is going to have your name on the side of it. And if you can't deal with that fact, then get out now. 
And that's brutal and it's horrible, but it's absolutely true. And no one had really been honest with me and I feel stupid for not realising it for myself, but the culture means that you don't and you can't talk about it. And it feels so weird. I mean, this this book's been, you know, read, what is it, a quarter of a million times by now. And and I'm, I go around the country, you know, on tour talking about my book. I, you know, I, I, I go on various media outlets and I'm happy to talk about it. But at the time, I never talked about it. I couldn't talk about it. It was just too difficult. The first time my parents knew what, what had happened was when they read a copy of this book at the end of last year. My husband didn't know why I'd left medicine. We've been going out years and years and years, but didn't know what that event was until I was up in Edinburgh at the Fringe reading out from my diaries. And that's, yeah, that's not, that's not healthy, I get that, but that's on me. And when the junior doctors were coming under fire from a government lying that doctors were being greedy, they were in it for the wrong reasons, I realised something more important, that it's not healthy for the public. Every single healthcare professional should be yelling out about the reality of what the job means that it does mean terrible hours and it does mean an emotional toll at home and at work. We shouldn't be ashamed to admit that we're all human beings and that even though it's, it's a thousand times worse when a bad thing happens to a, to a patient, to a family, it does rebound a bit on the doctor and these are people who have to, or the nurse or the physio or the pharmacist, or, and these people have to go home and, um, and deal with it and it's unhealthy to pretend it doesn't happen. So I thought if I could be more honest about it, if I could present the reality of the job to as many people as possible, which I've now been extremely fortunate to be able to do, then next time the government lies, the doctors are in it for the money, the public can say, of course they're not in it for the money. Why would anyone in their right mind do that job for the money? Because you can read my book and you won't think I'm an amazing doctor. I make lots of mistakes and, you know, and I'm, not, I'm the world's nicest person, but I'm all sorts of things. But I don't think you can get to the end and say, yeah, he's greedy. And I don't think you can say that about any junior doctor. Maybe there's like one or two consultant private plastic surgeons knocking around, but they're in, hidden within the tiny decimal points of doctors. Doctors go into it, they, you know, with their straight A's at A-level, they could have, if they had dollar signs behind their eyes, they could have gone into the city, they could have done any number of jobs to earn money. But you do the job, the bit of the job that I miss is the, the helping people and the fact that you're driving home three hours late and splattered with blood, but you're smiling because you know you did a good thing. Well, I, I want to finish off by saying that, you know, despite the trauma, we've been talking in this interview about the trauma and the long hours and the stress and the difficulties and, you know, not least people with foreign objects in their rectums. But this book is also absolutely definitely a love letter to the NHS. Um, let's just finish off saying something about, I don't know, how could it be better? <sighs> I mean, how could it be better on a day-to-day -day basis for the people working in it? So the NHS is going to be 70 years old this year. If we want it to see another five years, let alone another 70, we need to have a big grown-up conversation about what we want from the NHS. And by the NHS, what I mean is the million and a half people who work there. It's not buildings. It's not real estate. The NHS is people. And the NHS is currently really struggling. Last year... We lost 10% of the nurses working in England. 
7.5% in, in Scotland and Northern Ireland. That's untenable. There's lots of wards where there are 50% nursing staff working there. And they're keeping going because they're committed and they love it. There are 40,000 vacancies in, in nursing. There are 10,000 vacancies amongst doctors. When I left, I was this glitch in the matrix. No one left medicine. It wasn't what you do. Now I can barely look on Facebook without seeing, you know, friends who've given their life to this job, people who've rescheduled their own stag do's for this job, leaving and, you know, going to other countries or leaving the profession entirely. And what can be done? There's a very simple answer to it. And it's money. And this is what the big discussion needs to be about. Historically, the NHS got 4% more in real terms every year. That was the, what's known as health inflation. That's the amount it, it takes to keep going with a sort of, you know, there's a couple more expensive drugs come in, the population gets a bit older, all sorts of bits and bobs. Over the last decade, it's had about 1% in real terms. And it was never flush with cash before. But how can, how can we expect it to keep going? And it is still fit for purpose. Don't listen to politicians who are saying, oh, it's not working. It is working. But it's working because people are giving 200% of what they should be giving. You know, I'm talking about what it was like being a house officer, you know, carrying my one bleep. There are now house officers carrying two bleeps, three bleeps. It, it is going, but only just. If we want the NHS that Nye Bevan gave us free at the point of service it needs more money and the money needs to come from somewhere I'm not an economist I don't know what that answer is maybe it needs some money in tax that feels like the the simplest way but short-term politicians thinking about their next electoral cycle who's going to put tuppence on tax for the NHS they're worried about being re-elected there is the money we're such a rich country we really really are you know we can spend billions of pounds on missiles under the water. We can spend billions of pounds getting to Birmingham 15 minutes quicker. We can bung the DUP a billion pounds. It's, it's possible to do. We spend less per capita than almost every European country on health. If we spent as much as Germany did as a proportion of GDP, we'd be fine. But we don't. And something needs to happen very soon. We're at a turning point. If more money goes in and a large amount more money very soon the NHS can be what it was and it can thrive and, and it can see another 70 years. If more money doesn't go in, then something's going to snap and we'll end up with an NHS that isn't fit for purpose. Not for the staff who are working there, not doing their best, but just because there aren't enough resources. It needs investment. There's a crisis in recruitment. There's a crisis in retention. And as we saw last winter, all it takes is one big stressor to prove that there's there's absolutely no slack. So what does it need? It needs loads more money. It doesn't need discussions about health tourism. Yeah, it costs a bit of money. Politicians keep talking about health tourism. Yeah, it costs a bit of money. It costs a third of a percentage point of the NHS budget. And great if we could get that back. That's not the problem. When we're talking about the crisis in NHS funding, that's not the problem. Talking about how we could save X amount by investing in AI system. Yes, I'm sure we could if there's an evidence base for it. I'm sure in the future that's something we should look at. But there won't be an NHS in which to use this AI unless we're spending huge amounts more money on, on keeping it going. And... All I'm saying by more money is the amount of money it would have had if we'd kept up with that 4% increase over the decade when we didn't. We just need to get back to 
baseline reasonable health spending and then it won't be me coming on the podcast in 70 years but hopefully someone else will to say isn't it great we've hit 140. So I've been talking to Adam Kay. We've been talking about his book, This Is Going To Hurt, Secret Diaries of a Junior Doctor, which is out from Picador just recently in paperback. Adam, thank you for coming in and sharing it with us. Thanks for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.